0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: Welcome to another episode of Another Way a podcast produced by Equal Citizens. This is Adam Egan, the Executive Director of Equal Citizens. The movement to pass the For the People Act is growing, and every day I get more encouraged that we will turn this historic fair elections bill into law. Think about it. In just the last few weeks, tens of thousands of Americans have taken action to pressure the Senate for the For the People Act. Hundreds have put their bodies on the line, risking arrest to push the ball forward. The media is covering the fight again, and as we heard from Jana Morgan the director of the Declaration for American Democracy Coalition, Senate Democrats are working hard on a slight compromise bill that will unify the caucus and make it easier to pass through the Senate, at least once the filibuster question is resolved. There is no roadblock that we cannot overcome. Well, that is except time. What do I mean by that? As I've alluded to in my previous interviews, we do face a deadline. For the For the People Act to have the most impact, it must be passed before, or at least soon after, the Census Bureau releases precinct-level data that states will use to redistrict congressional and state maps. Once that data is released, it will be significantly harder to rein in the worst gerrymandering practices this decade. Oh. And did I mention that that deadline is now this week, on August 12th? Don't despair, though. Like I said, I'm still extremely confident that we will win reform, including that which will put significant protections against the next round of gerrymandering. So to help break down what to expect from the upcoming redistricting cycle, how the For the People Act would prevent extreme gerrymandering, and the consequences of this upcoming census deadline, I spoke to Michael Lee. Michael serves as the senior counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program, where his work focuses on redistricting, voting rights, and elections. Prior to joining the Brennan Center, Lee practiced law at Baker Botts LLP in Dallas for 10 years. He was the author of a widely cited blog on redistricting and election law issues that the New York Times called indispensable. He is a regular writer and commentator on election law issues, appearing on PBS NewsHour, MSNBC, and NPR, and in print in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, USA Today, Roll Call, Fox. National Journal, Texas Tribune, among many, many others. I sincerely hope you enjoy the interview, but above all, don't give up. Time may be short, but we have the people power to make the For the People Act the law of the land.
0: Michael, it's great to have you on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So you're an expert on gerrymandering, and I always have to ask a basic question to get us started, which is what's gerrymandering? We we've talked about this on the podcast before. We've had, you know, a friend of the podcast, Dave Daly on, but let's let's start us off here. What's gerrymandering, Michael, and why should we care about it?
2: So gerrymandering is the word that we use in America to describe the manipulation of electoral districts, either for partisan advantage or to discriminate against racial minorities, um, although it's most often used sort of in the the political context. And, you know, it's something that has been with us since the very beginning of the republic. In fact, it predates the term gerrymandering, which comes from 1812. But, you know, even before uh, 1812, um, you know, uh, Patrick Henry of Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death fame uh, uh, was famous for that. But he also was governor of Virginia when the very first congressional map had to be created for Virginia. And he tried to have the map drawn in a way that a man named James Madison couldn't win an election to Congress. He was not successful. But even the founding generation engaged in the manipulation of districts. So it's something that's been with us a long time, although it is getting worse now uh, because of data and technology. It's much easier now to draw maps that sort of are drawn with micro precision and that stick for the whole of the decade and really sort of render elections um, meaningless
0: right and, and and the last round of redistricting in 2010 was was particularly bad right i mean this the, the maps that we had for the last decade were were unbreakable
2: absolutely you're you know the 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 2010 cycle of redistricting produced some of the most aggressive gerrymanders in the country's history so you ended up with like a 103 map of the in north carolina that had 10 a map that had Ten Republican seats, three Democratic seats in a state that's fifty-fifty. Pennsylvania, another fifty-fifty state, was a thirteen-five map. Ohio, all decade long, has been a twelve-four Republican map. Um, it's the, you know, and, and these. These gerrymanders, for the most part, have stuck all decade now. Pennsylvania and North Carolina were redrawn by because of state court litigation, but Pennsylvania or Ohio rather has stuck the the whole of the decade, so.
0: right? And, and as you said, you know a lot of this, and this is really you know what I think is really underreported, which is you know it really is this the rise of of big data and just kind of the the tools, the digital tools at mapmakers' disposal have kind of allowed for these maps to really be unbreakable, as as we just said. Um, so, okay, you know, Michael, if, if the last decade was bad, you know, again, assuming the legal status quo holds, no reform, uh, just how bad is the upcoming round of gerrymandering going
2: to be? So when we look at the cycle that's about to start, it two weeks or so when the, the data comes out from the Census Bureau, um, it really is a tale of two countries. A number of states that had really bad gerrymanders last decade um, look better now. So like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania now have Democratic governors who can veto maps and send the maps into courts. There have been reforms in states like Michigan and, and Ohio where things look a little bit better now um, because Michigan in particular was created an independent commission. But on the other hand, if you look at the South where Democrats um, you know tried to win a seat at the table in 2018 and 2020 and fell short both times, Um, you know, those maps will be drawn once again under single-party Republican control. Um, And the cycle there really looks very dark and ominous. Um, And, you know, really with, again, people of color, communities of color bearing the brunt um, because it, it really is very hard to gerrymander in the South, Without targeting communities of color, the Democrats in Texas and Georgia only get about 25, 28 percent of the white vote. And the problem with white Democrats is that they tend to live really close to white Republicans in the same neighborhoods and sometimes in the same houses. And so unless you're drawing a line down somebody's bed, it's really hard to sort of like – do that much gerrymandering targeting white Democrats in the South, um, but because of residential segregation, it's much easier to pack together or break apart communities of color in order to move the partisan dial up or down. Um, and, you know, so it, it really looks like a very dark um, cycle in, in those states, and four states in particular, t- Texas, Texas. Uh, you know, Georgia, Florida, North Carolina, it's it's very conceivable that Republicans could easily gerrymander their way back to the House majority, not only in twenty twenty two, but for the whole of the decade.
0: Right. So let's let's dig into that a little bit. I mean again, you know, this is a nonpartisan podcast. You work for the Brennan Center, a nonpartisan organization. Equal Citizens is a nonpartisan organization. But but the political stakes here are, you know, as you just put, that the 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 fate of you know who's going to control the the people's house, the House of Representatives, as you said, will likely come down to aggressive gerrymandering, not not about the will of the people, but but essentially about which, po- like how politicians can essentially rig maps to ensure elections. I mean, is, is essentially that a fair characterization of um, you know what could happen if reform, if we don't reform uh, this you know broken system of of redistricting?
2: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You know, John Adams, back at the founding of the country, talked about how legislatures, how Congress, should be an exact portrait, a miniature of the people as a whole, um, and that really, the idea really being like, if your interests were at the table, so should you be. And you know, when you have maps like a ten-three map in, in North Carolina or or a twelve-four map in Ohio um, that underrepresent one party um, versus the other, um, that isn't the case, right? You know, and it it it, it sort of results in in, in real. Uh, skews that are very anti-democratic and, you know, in many cases, like these, you know, the result of the general election is predetermined, basically, you know, the the founding generation set up for us to have elections every two years because they thought as the mood of the people changes, so should the composition of Congress. Um, But, you know, when you rig maps like this, um, you know, there, there really isn't a need for elections every two years.
0: Right, and so the stakes are really high from a from a partisan perspective and a, certainly a demo, like small D Democratic perspective. But there's there's something I want to dig into a little bit. Um, and you know, before we get into the solutions to this problem, you recently penned an op-ed in the Washington Post, and I wanted to read a small passage from it and ask you to explain you know a, a little bit about what you wrote because I think it's a really important point. You already alluded to it, so let me let me um, read a little bit from from this op-ed, and we'll link to it in the show notes. And so you wrote, "Most people of color in the country's metro area." now live in the suburbs rather than in traditional majority-minority districts in inner cities. Here, a new type of minority power has begun to emerge as multiracial coalitions have come together around cities such as Atlanta, Dallas, and Houston. But these districts are not protected by the voting rights laws as interpreted by the Supreme Court and will likely be dismantled by partisan map drawers in redistricting. The damage will last a decade. Michael, can you tell me what you meant by that?
2: Sure. One of the new things that's happened in our country over the last 20 years or so is that most people of color who live in the metro areas now live in the suburbs rather than in the city. And even though there still is segregation um, in the suburbs, people are no longer segregated into like district-sized units. And so, you know, one of the requirements of voting rights – uh, law as interpreted by the Supreme Court is you have to show that you could draw a majority district and that's like really hard to do in the suburbs because you know it's a little bit more like Swiss cheese right there are a lot of people of color but they're, they're they exist in patches and so you know you have to draw districts that sort of aren't are no longer compact um you know and, and that another requirement of voting rights law and so um you know it, in because of that voting rights uh, law doesn't really reach those areas. And so those areas are sort of vulnerable, right? You know, and the the way that voting rights law works today really was designed for a black, a more black and white, uh, literally a black and white world of 1965. It's not designed for the more multi-racial world of today. Um, and, and, you know, it can, it can be really hard to use. So there are places like at, outside of Houston in the Texas 22nd congressional district where, you know, it's a very diverse, like heavily, heavy Latino population, uh, heavy South Asian population, heavy Vietnamese population, those districts, um, you know, Democrats have really been very competitive and they didn't win it, but they came really close. And if those districts survived for another five years, uh, at some point, these multiracial coalitions that are emerging would win those districts. But because we have to redistrict, uh, you know, Republican mapmakers can just kneecap that, right? So the, the future of the country is multiracial and it's coalitional, but they will just come back and they will try to kneecap that and sort of set um, the political power of communities of color back, back to a decade.
0: Right. So, so again, just to, you know, to make this really clear that essentially because of demographic changes, some of the former protections that we had against the worst excesses of gerrymandering, especially cracking and packing, certain communities of color i mean specifically i guess in this case cracking communities of color um have gone somewhat out the window because because of these demographic shifts so this will be you know maybe not the first election but it will be you know one of the first elections where you do have these kind of multiracial coalitions in the suburbs that that it, it won't be quite as easy for courts to to strike down maps that do you know cut up these communities like swiss cheese i mean is that is that kind of what you're suggesting here
2: yeah, that, that's absolutely right. You know, like there are districts that Democrats either won using, you know, that multi-racial coalitions either won or came close to winning in in the suburbs of Atlanta, the suburbs of Dallas, the suburbs of Houston. Um that could easily be dismantled now, right? Because they're not sort of majority black or majority Latino. They're they're a hodgepodge of people. Uh, you know, um, for example, there's the Georgia seventh congressional district, which is about forty six percent non white, right? Almost majority non white, um, where the multiracial coalitions have had a lot of success electing candidates at all levels of government. Um, yet, because um you know that they they're not it's not majority black or majority latino or majority asian um you know it can easily be dismantled and there's a perfect justification for it because of the supreme court's ruling in regional versus common cause which says that you can you can target people of a different political party and so all map makers have to do is say we were trying to discriminate against democrats and the fact that they're mostly people of color well so be it, right? But you, Supreme Court, have told us that it's perfectly fine to discriminate against people of a different political party, and that's all we're doing.
0: Yeah, and I, and I want to dig into to the fact that we can't sue in the federal courts anymore around gerrymandering a second. Um, but before we get there, Michael, you know, beyond partisanship, why is it so detrimental to our democracy that lawmakers can, you know, turn uh, areas with communities of color— into Swiss cheese? Like, why, why does it matter from a kind of a small D democratic point of view that, you know, you can splice and dice communities of color into different districts? Like, what what value does, like, do major, uh, majority minority districts have or have traditionally had, um, you know, in, in our society?
2: Well, I'll, I'll go back to what John Adams said when he talked about how Congress should be an exact portrait, a miniature of the people as a whole. That that sort of is the goal. And you know, if you're sort of slicing and dicing, um, you know, in order to minimize the the voices of people, they're not able to elect candidates. Then the result is that Congress doesn't resemble. You know, it isn't an exact portrait, a miniature of the people as a whole. Um, but moreover, you're doing damage to sort of like you know like I, I do think it's important to say that that gerrymandering damages both political parties, including the party that does it. In this case, um, the Republicans, right? Because the future of the country is multiracial; it's coalitional Latinos and Asians combined will be a third of the population of the country by 2030, right? You know, like in a different world, if if you know, right now Republicans in many parts of the country are trying to deny that the you know this multiracial. Um, you know, this emerging multiracial America, um, you know, pretend like it it doesn't exist, sort of do things to to minimize its power. But if they, if you... If if you had fair draw districts, they would have to reckon with that, and they would have to figure out how to go compete for the votes of black voters and Latino voters and Asian voters. And you know, we saw in twenty twenty like there there are appeals that Republicans, you, you know, these voters are open to more conservative messages and appeals, right? And you know, and so it's not as though Republicans would get completely shut out. Now they would have to change some of their more sort of racist and you know xenophobic <laughs> lines and things like that. But but you know, they would they would they would say, okay, we live in a multiracial world. We're going to go out and compete in. For voters in a multiracial world. But right now, they could just ignore it because of gerrymandering, kick the can down the road, essentially. So it, it sort of, you know, is damaging to, to frankly, both parties.
0: I, I think that's exactly right, that that beyond, you know, gerrymandering as a partisan issue, it, it does, when you draw districts that empower a, a often rural white vote, it does empower a certain uh, um, or allow for a certain xenophobia or racism to persist in American democracy. And so, you know, fair maps would potentially lead to a body politic that's more inclusive and, and welcoming of all groups and, and, and br- would bring us, I think, closer to uh, a vision or a, a reality of a multiracial democracy uh, in a way that we have not seen, uh, or at least we've we've seen disappearing in the past ten years. So I think that's a really really good right. point. Um, so Michael, you know that's all all great and, and quite uh, troubling, obviously. In terms of you know what the states have done to impact gerrymandering to to mitigate it, you know what are some of the things that you you've seen in states? And also you knew, again, you briefly uh, mentioned this, but why, why can't we sue right now in the federal court? Can't we bring these cases to the Supreme Court? And obviously I asked that question knowing the answer. Um, but I, I want to kind of you know have you answer that question about well, what happened to uh, using uh, the federal court system to try and rein in this you know egregious gerrymandering?
2: So uh, the there, there's good news and bad news about the war on gerrymandering, and the good news is that um, uh, that on, on several fronts the war is going quite well. Um, you know, and there have been a number of states that have passed redistricting reforms to, to strengthen and fix the process, um, which was very broken. States like Michigan and Colorado created independent commissions, A number of states passed other types of reforms. Uh, there have been successes in litigating cases in state court. And places like Pennsylvania and North Carolina, um, likewise, you know, there is legislation which we'll talk about in a minute about moving through Congress that could help fix um, partisan gerrymandering. But the bad news is that you know a lot of the reforms have come through ballot initiatives um, rather than through legislatures. Uh, you know, law, partisan lawmakers are oftentimes very hesitant to give up their power. Um, and you don't have ballot initiatives everywhere, particularly east of the Mississippi. There are very few states that actually do allow for ballot initiatives, so it, it can be really hard to do reforms um, in much of the country. Um, and likewise, the Supreme Court um, at the federal level has said that you, you know, partisan gerrymandering violates any number of constitutional norms, but you can't bring partisan gerrymandering claims in federal court because it is what they term a quote unquote political question, meaning that it's something for the political process to work out and and you know Uh, Chief Justice Roberts, in his opinion, in Rucho versus Common Cause in in 2019, that said all of that said, like, you know, it's it's really an issue for Congress and the states to fix. And so that is where a lot of the current focus is on, um, you know, on the states, but more particularly uh, right now in Congress.
0: So, so again, you know, the, the reforms available on the state level have been, you know, around independent redistricting commissions, which, you know, we'll talk about a bit more on the federal level as well. Um, but the idea of like for taking power, you know, the power to draw maps out of the hands of the state lawmakers and into the hands of independent commissions. Um, you know, other types of, of reforms. And and as you said, you know, uh, a lot of these reforms have been done on the ballot. I mean, I think about, you know, Michigan, especially, right, with Katie Fahey, who we've had on this podcast before. Um, and, there, and there has been a really a, a tremendous movement in states to try and reform this process. But I think that what you just said about, you know, just how difficult it is to convince uh, state lawmakers to give up their own power to draw the maps is really the operative thing here and will guide our conversation about why we need federal reform, uh, because state lawmakers... Uh, with the exception of Virginia, and maybe, maybe, Michael, you can tell me that I'm, I'm wrong here. I, I can't think of another instance necessarily where lawmakers have actually kind of given up their, their, um, their power to draw maps, uh, at least in the past couple of years. Most of the reforms have been bypassing the legislature uh, and, and via ballot initiative.
2: That that's that's right. I mean, New New Hampshire, they passed a advisory commission. There got vetoed by the governor. Um, you know, there in Pennsylvania, there 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 is bipartisan support for redistricting reforms. There, the leadership hasn't brought it up to a vote. So even lawmakers are increasingly getting it. But you know, there's also a lot of of course pushback in the political class and you know among. It elected uh, officials to sort of like changing too much of the process, so um, so mostly it's been through ballot initiatives,
0: right? So so you know that that brings us a little bit to you know the there, there's probably a limit to how much reform we can do at the state level. You know we're not there yet. There's still plenty of movement happening on the, you know in states, and the, and there is you know we need the state level effort, especially because you know federal reform, and again we'll talk about this, can't necessarily affect the state level maps, which are often just as if not more gerrymandering than the congressional district maps. Um, you, know, you think of like Wisconsin, Michigan. Um, you know, those state level maps. So for like the state house and state senate are, uh, you know, un- truly unbreakable maps. I mean, I think of North Carolina too. Um, you know, there's a limit to kind of what the federal government can do. Uh, you know, for those state maps. But again, you know, there, there's progress being made. It's very, it's increasingly clear that we do need federal reform, at least if if we're going to fix the House of Representatives, because these states are not going to, you know, take the, you know, give up their own power, especially if there's partisan advantage in, in places where the state maps are, you know, in this case, and you know, in 2020, heavily skewed towards the Republicans. You know, the Republicans want to take control of the House. They're not going to give up their power to draw, you know, 13 to five maps in favor of the Republican Party. I mean, that's just the the political calculus here. Maps. So we need some sort of federal legislation to take that to kind of forcibly take that power out of the hands of the state legislatures and giving it to independent commissions, or or, or at least having putting some sort of you know guidelines or. Um, some sort of restraints on what the state legislatures can do when drawing uh, the congressional maps in 2021. So let's let's move to the For the People Act, which we've talked about many times on this podcast. In fact, this we're we're devoting this little mini series to the For the People Act as it reaches a crescendo. Uh, what protections does the For the People Act have for? gerrymandering for this upcoming round of gerrymandering? And why do these main components matter? Like, give us a rundown of of what's in the anti-gerrymandering portion of the For the People Act.
2: So the the For the People Act would be the most uh, transformative piece of legislation passed about congressional redistricting in history. And it does a number of things. One is that it would ban partisan gerrymandering by statute. The Supreme Court has said that you can't bring Partisan gerrymandering claims under the U.S. Constitution in federal court, but Congress has the power under the Elections Clause to ban partisan gerrymandering as part of the you know its ability to dictate how congressional districts are drawn. And so, the For the People Act would do that. It would also strengthen protections for communities of color, um, you know, uh, making clear that you can have coalition and crossover districts that would you know uh, give you know uh, communities of color new legal tools to fight gerrymandering. It also would impose. Transparency requirements on the process, which can be really critical. In Pennsylvania in 2011, uh, Republicans held the map in secret um, until the day that it was to be heard in committee. Then they um, voted the bill out of – they released the map. They voted the bill out of committee and they voted it out of the Senate the same day. Um, and so the public had almost no chance to like review the map or comment on it. Um, the Newspapers didn't even have a chance to run stories before the, the map had already passed the Senate. And so, you know, the For the People Act would impose like minimum transparency requirements, require states to make data available, require like proceedings to be streamed online, would allow people to make comments um, and submit their own map proposals. Um, and then, um, you know, last but not least, it would, it would change the way that cases get litigated right because right now um cases oftentimes get bogged out in court and you know and in texas one court three years to decide a case about uh redistricting um and so it would speed up the process and 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 even the the playing field a, a lot um and I should add one other thing, which there isn't time for this decade, which would be independent commissions. The HR one, as it's currently written, um, would create independent commissions. But you know, independent commissions take about nine months to set up, and you know, with the data coming out in a couple of weeks, uh, there isn't time to set up a commission to draw maps this decade. That might be something that that could be phased in for twenty thirty and years beyond. But even the things that I talked about before, independent commissions would be you know groundbreaking, and and you know lead to a much fairer and better outcome.
0: Right. So, so, you know, you talked a little bit about the short deadline and, and, you know, in the last episode I did, it was with Jana Morgan of, of the uh, Declaration for American democracy coalition. And we spoke about, you know, just the urgency around this upcoming deadline. Uh, you're the perfect person to give us a little bit more uh, get or rather to get a little bit more into the weeds about why this August 16th deadline is so important and really what it's all about. Um, so can you can you tell us a little bit about, like, what what is the significance of August 16th?
2: So on August 16th, the Census Bureau will release the block-level redistricting data that states need to produce maps. Uh, a few months ago, it produced the, the population totals for each state, but that only tells us how many people live in each state. It doesn't tell us where they live or anything about them, such as their age or ethnicity, um, which um, is information that you need to draw maps. And that data will now be released on August 16th. It will take the states a couple of weeks to process it, to put it in the precincts that they use to draw maps, but then it will be off to the races, and a number of states are expected to draw maps and pass them very quickly. Um, 18 states have some deadline, either this fall or early next year, that will require them to to draw maps. Um, Another 14 states customarily draw maps in the the year ending at one. And so if they you know, there's every indication that they will try to keep to that. So by the end of the year, most of the country will be done with redistricting. And so if Congress is going to step in and, and fix the process, the <laughs> optimal time for it to do so would be now, um, which is not to say that something couldn't be done later, um, but it, it becomes, first of all, less robust, like you, you can't obviously go back and tell states to have a minimum number of hearings or something like that after they've passed MAPS, right? That would be good for states to know beforehand. Um, on the other, yeah, you know, at, at the same time, you know, if you're going to have to litigate about MAPS, say like in January or February, that increases the likelihood that primaries and the like get moved and, you know, the, the election schedule gets a little bit disrupted. So to to have the smoothest redistricting process and the smoothest 2022 elections possible, Congress really does need to act, you know, now or you know shortly after Labor Day at the very latest,
0: right? So so again, you know, and and that's why there's so much movement right now for Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to to cancel the recess to try and get the For the People Act through the Senate to break the filibuster, um, you know, ASAP uh, to get it before the Census releases these you know the numbers that will. Uh, allow states to kind of officially start the process of gerrymandering, um, or I guess in some places to not gerrymander, but to to, to redistrict. Um, but uh, can you talk a little bit about the kind of how every state ha- does have a different timeline here? Um, I'm not going to put you on the spot to tell me the the kind of the, the the deadlines that each state constitution outlines about when the maps have to be uh, set in stone. But I mean, what 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 kind of variation are we looking at? And and you know, do you expect any states to to move within the first? two, weeks. I mean, you know, are are you know, are some states? You know, do you, do you think that they already have kind of sample maps prepped by now that are ready to go to kind of you know start the process to to gerrymander? I mean, you think of you know your your um, your home state of Texas. Are are, is, are you know? We know that the Texas lawmakers are are uh, have a certain um, tendency to to lean towards anti Democratic policies. Um, are they do you, do you expect that they already have a couple drafts ready to go once they you know that they'll just kind of plug in the numbers from the census on the 16th when they're released and then you know they'll move pretty quickly thereafter
2: yeah, I mean, I, I think it's almost a certainty that, uh, you know, partisan lawmakers and partisan interests in, in virtually every state have already been sort of toying around with what maps could look like based on, you know, the American Community Survey and other data sets, right? They they know that they'll have to adjust them for the final census numbers to make sure that they're legally compliant. But they're, they're already kind of trying to figure out what they can do, um, you know, both in a good way but also in a bad way. Um, And so, you know, like I think I do think a lot of states will move very fast to redistrict in part because they're already behind the, you know, the, the, you know, the ball because of the late release of the census data. You know, most states already, you know, most ordinarily the data would have come out in February or March. Uh, States would have redistricted in the spring and summer and. But now they have to rush in order to complete maps for the upcoming election. And, you know, a number of states like Illinois and um, Texas have fairly early filing deadlines in, in the fall and early winter. And so, you know, in order to get maps done in time for those to meet those deadlines, you know, they really do have to rush to do it. And so, you know, and, you know, I think many states are ready to get this over with. And I think also some states are going to use the delay as a reason for like just cut, you know, having a rush process, cutting the public out as much as possible, right? Just saying like we have to do this. And so, you know, you know, redistricting, you know, you know, I like to say redistricting is at every 10 year Olympics and we're about to you know start having people competing in the redistricting Olympics and winning medals and and you know like before you know it it's like the real Olympics, because it's here it's gone and that's that's what's going to happen
0: and and the reason why the the census numbers were delayed was because of the trumps you know trump administration uh mishandling of of the census is that is that correct
2: well it's just and that well, was the trump administration's um you know actions but also covid right you know like the census got off to a late start um because of covid just because Just as as the Census Bureau was preparing to send people in the field to go knock on doors, you know, we were right in the middle of the pandemic. So, um, you know, there there are legitimate reasons, but then, you know, there were efforts to add a citizenship question, a lot of litigation over the census, and so – you know, the Census Bureau really, I think, has taken the time that it needs to sort of make sure that the data is as good a quality as it can be, you know, despite the political interference and despite, you know, the unusual circumstances caused by the pandemic. But that has meant that the data that normally comes out in February now is coming out in the middle of August, and it will be a time crunch for many states to get things done.
0: Right. So let's, again, let's make it very clear to our listeners, if Congress Passes the For the People Act, say in two weeks, or let's say more likely in mid-September. What are the guardrails that would be in effect immediately for this next cycle? In other words, like what are the best things that we can still make federal law because we we can't give up, right? Even if we can't have IRCs necessarily, the independent you know commissions uh, for this round of redistricting. What specifically, you know, as you already said, like what what specifically can we actually put into the books? to mitigate the worst of this upcoming round of gerrymandering? Aaron So,
2: um, you know, reform that passes sometime in the fall um, could create a, a cause of action for partisan gerrymandering that people could take states to court um, if they gerrymander, um, and that would be really powerful. Um, it also could streamline how litigation gets um, litigated. Um, And and make it more likely that you get to a quick decision and that things don't sort of get bogged up in the appellate process, um, which would be really powerful. There also, you know, Congress would have the opportunity to impose national uniform rules for how districts are drawn. You know, right now, there aren't actually really a lot of rules in most states for how you draw congressional districts. Um, The states are much more prescriptive about legislative and state senatorial districts than they are about congressional districts. And so in most states... You know, there, there really are very few rules. Um, and so um, you would, for the first time, have national uniform rules that, you know, not only ban partisan gerrymandering, but that strengthen protections for communities of color in, in critical ways. I um, mean, all that could be done, um, you know, and, and you know, uh, and it, it would be really powerful. Um, but Congress does need to act soon if it's to, you know, get the bill um, in time to avoid a lot of disruption to the process and, you know, um you know you know it 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 needs to act like pronto um but but certainly by early fall with the latest
0: and so those those kind of standards w- would be a game changer i mean again just because we can't get everything that would be a really big deal michael right
2: I, I think everyone from from the civil rights groups to the good government groups agrees that like this this is necessary and you know it is critical and no one um is letting the the perfect be the enemy of the good um you know people have different views on what what reform looks like some of the good government groups in particular really are big proponents of independent commissions but everyone says just doing this would be you know a game changer it would create a more level playing field it wouldn't necessarily you know it you still have to have a lot of fights um, because states like Texas will do <laughs> what states like Texas will do and have historically have done. But um, you know, people would have tools that they don't currently have right now. And it, without this, it's going to be a really dark and ominous uh, cycle, particularly again for communities of color.
0: And, and not to get into the weeds too much, but you know, how, do you, how would the court actually determine what is a partisan gerrymander? Um, so if, if before the People Act becomes law and it says partisan gerrymandering is banned, well, how how do the courts determine a partisan gerrymandering?
2: So, uh, the For the People Act would ban maps that have either the that were drawn either with the intent or that have the effect of creating an unfair partisan advantage. And the effect part really is key because you know when people were litigating partisan gerrymandering claims in court under the U.S. Constitution or under state constitutions. It's always an intent claim. So you have to prove that lawmakers intentionally were trying to do something bad. What the For the People Act would do is say, like, even if you didn't have the intent, even if you were doing things, if you're just perfectly acting in good faith, if your map produces an unfair partisan effect, it needs to be redrawn. And that will make – that simple fact that you, you, you can now either bring in an intent claim or an effect claim makes litigating cases much more straightforward than it was before. Um, and because you have national uniform rules, you know, you don't sort of get to states to, you know, you know, in, in the partisan gerrymandering cases states always had excuses, right? You know, like, oh, we, we try to like protect incumbents or we are trying to, you know, keep counties whole or something like that. You know, those would no longer be defenses. So the litigation would become a lot more straightforward. Um and you know it would be you know you know you know it really would be incredibly powerful you know in the in the handful of states where we know that people are already plenty aggressive gerrymanders.
0: And so, would the Four of the People Act enact a kind of a statistical test to determine you know at what point something becomes a partisan gerrymander as opposed to just you know I don't know geographic sorting?
2: Well, we know you know there there are different ways that you could go about it, and I know that you know people are debating you know perhaps tinkering with the test that's currently in the bill. Um, because I think people do want to make sure that it is easy to use and straightforward. But a statistical test would be a, a part of that. Um for sure, absolutely, and
0: there are certainly. I mean, you know, this is one of the things that I, I think is so interesting about the, you know, the folks working to combat gerrymandering is there are a lot of mathematicians who have been working on this issue.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the science around partisan gerrymandering and the analytics around partisan gerrymandering have have grown by leaps and bounds over the last few years. But I also want to stress. That when you're talking about a 10 3 map in North Carolina, a 50 50 state, or a 12 4 map in Ohio, like that, that doesn't require a lot of sophisticated analytics, right? It, it's a little bit like sometimes when you go in the doctor, you know, like, you know, sometimes they have to do MRIs and take all kinds of complicated tests. In other cases, the doctor, like just to, like looks at you and says, "Okay, I know what you have right and 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 things like that, and so um you know the the gerrymanders in the last decade were so bad like it doesn't really take a lot you don't need a lot of computers to do it, um, but you know, there will be harder cases, and you know the analytics will be helpful there um you know and, and you know they' you know the hope is at least the easy cases get knocked out really quickly, and those maps get redrawn, and then people can spend more time litigating about cases that are a little bit more on the edge.
0: No, that 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 makes total sense. So, a penultimate question for you: uh, the the president recently implied that you know a lot of the suppression that we're seeing in our democracy can be out organized. Um, can you out organize a gerrymander? If if you know we have if we have the you know if we don't pass the For the People Act and you know we have egregious maps in Texas, in Alabama, Florida. Um, is that something that people can just, you know, put in an extra five hours a week and, and get equal representation or?
2: Well, as, as with respect to presidents, President Biden's comments about out organizing voter suppression and, and like, uh, you know, I, I would just say, like, as, as people in Texas say, like, you know, bless his heart. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, it, it's, it, it, you know, there, there's stuff that you could do, like, you know, out organize some forms of voter suppression, although you know, I think they will never end. But you, you can't outorganize a gerrymander. You just can't. And you saw that, you know, last decade where, you know, um in, in Pennsylvania as a prime example, um, you know, Democrats in Pennsylvania in twenty twelve won fifty one percent of the vote and got five seats, you know, so twenty seven percent of the seats, right? When they it, it, and you know by uh, many estimates: If Democrats got fifty-six percent of the vote under that, you know, the the map that passed in Pennsylvania last decade, they would only win six seats, so barely a third. Well, a, a third of the seats. Um, you know, by contrast, in two thousand six, when Democrats got fifty-six percent of the vote in Pennsylvania, they won eleven seats. Right, and 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 that gives you some sense of like how. Skewed these gerrymanders are, and then you look at states like Ohio, where it's been twelve four all decade. Democrats get twenty five percent of the seats in a state where they get a lot more than twenty five percent of the vote, and it's been twelve for all decade, and nothing has changed in good years in bad years um you know, even with the you know the the tsunami elections of twenty eighteen um you know that uh, it, nothing changed, and you you, you can't out organize that. You can't outrun it. You know what voter suppression does is it tries to make it harder for you to vote. What gerrymandering does is it it makes it so that even if you manage to go through all those hurdles and vote, your election doesn't your 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 vote doesn't mean anything.
0: What we really need is is for Biden to embody another Texan, um, LBJ, President Johnson, who uh, really took leadership when he passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, we, we, we need the president to, to kind of not be making claims that we can outorganize gerrymandering and voter suppression but but really champion uh, the For the People Act and the protections as as we've been talking about against uh, you know the upcoming wave of, of gerrymandering and make that you know make the stakes very clear because you know the president recently said that the stakes of you know voter suppression are you know or at least the, the GOP efforts to undermine democracy are is, is democracy authoritarianism. Um, and, and, you know, essentially what we're fa- if those are the stakes, then we need him to kind of embody, uh, LBJ, um, you know, as, as, as quickly as possible to get this through the Senate. So I, I do like to end Michael with a, an optimistic note, uh, or at least, uh, let's say a more hopeful note. Um, and that's, you know, what, what should folks be doing, um, you know, to, to stop the next round of gerrymandering, uh, you know, through legislation like the For the People Act.
2: So the most important thing that people can do is call their members of Congress, both in the U.S. House and the Senate, and tell them that they need to pass something soon um, and tell them that like redistricting is starting up and that they really need to act you know, in the next month or so. Um, and the number there is 202-221-3121. Um, I know that off the top of my head because I've given it out so many times. Um, again, 202 221 three one two one um so call your member of congress and tell them that they need to do something even if that means changing the filibuster because you know there are democrats beyond joe manchin and and kirsten Sinema who sort of have expressed concerns about changing the filibuster diane feinstein for example has said that she would support changing the the filibuster if our democracy was in crisis but she didn't know that our democracy was in crisis um and so, I think even people—you shouldn't assume that just because you're represented by Democrats that they sort of understand what is at stake. So do that, um, and then this August um, is—I think around the country is going to be a month of action. You know, a lot of people there are marches on the August 28th on the anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington that will call for democracy reform. There, um, you know, there's action all around the country. Um, you know, and but you know, talk to people. You know get engaged, tell them to, to call their member of Congress um, because the only way that the filibuster has been overcome in the past is, is because of you know um, you know pressure from inside and outside and that outside pressure has to come.
0: Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today and, and really taking us through uh, what's a very complex issue of gerrymandering and making it very very clear um, and really articulating the stakes of, of this fight for um, fair maps. This is really about representation and about ensuring that, uh, you know, communities of interest can actually have political influence over the next decade of our politics. So, Michael, thanks so much for joining
2: us. Thanks for having me.